welcome to episode five of the Hockey Pod, the FIH monthly uh, podcast where we meet hockey players, coaches, umpires, and officials from across the world. Uh, we've got a great lineup of guests today. Our guest co-host is fresh from the Wagner Stadium in the Netherlands, where she was one of the team of umpires at the FIH Hockey Pro League games between the Netherlands and Germany. A rising star on the international umpiring scene and one of the smiliest faces around. Our guest co-host today is Celine Martin-Schmetz of Belgium. Hello, Celine. How are you? Hello. I'm fine. Thank you. Good. Lovely to see you. Um, We're also joined by Australian goalkeeper Tyler Lovell. Um, Tyler has been a member of the Kookaburras squad since 2013 and has almost 150 caps to his name. He's a World Cup winner from the 2014 World Cup in The Hague and has Champions Trophies, Commonwealth Games and World League titles under his belt. I think he's also got a really cool name, TJ Lovell. It sort of uh, reminds me of a TV detective. Hi, Tyler. How are you? G'day, Sarah. I'm glad to be here. Um, and then we've got Siegfried Aikman, all the way from Japan. Siegfried has a long coaching pedigree that began in the 1980s. Much of his coaching knowledge is gleaned from the Dutch club scene, and he is now combining the exceptional gamesmanship of the Dutch system with the high skill level of the Japanese, as he endeavours to lead Japan men to an Olympic medal in Tokyo. So welcome, Siegfried. Thank you. And as usual, um, my co-host for the day is Rich Stainthorpe, a media manager and, and writer for the FIH. Hi, Richard. How are you today? Very well, Sarah. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good. I'm really good. Um, so without any further ado, I guess we can we can head over to the news, Rich. Yeah, so um, you've already mentioned it, that the FIH Hockey Pro League matches that uh, have just taken place in the Wagner Stadium in Amsterdam. Uh, it was a doubleheader between uh, Germany and the Netherlands, uh, Netherlands women, uh, men and women hosting Germany. Uh, it, the Netherlands game, Netherlands women it went to form. The, the, the Dutch ended up winning both matches and, uh, and yeah, certainly in the second game were were bang in form. Um, the men's match was went, didn't really go to plan. I think most people were expecting the Dutch to run away with it, but uh, Germany ended up taking two wins, which uh, shows them um, hitting form uh, in, in Olympic year, which is pretty standard for them. Um, but yeah, very, very interesting. And Celine, obviously you were part of that uh, that weekend. How, how was it for you? Uh, it's uh, always amazing to be on the, on the Pro League and uh, to have games, especially in this moment that uh, not so many people... Uh, can uh, go on the pitch and have games like that, especially uh, Netherlands against Germany. It's always a, a big fight and I, I was really happy to, to be part of it. And you enjoyed so, your time on the field? Yeah, always, you know. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's really great uh, to be able to to do it uh, with the with the virus, as we know. Uh, it's uh, getting more difficult, but uh, I think uh, people are really enjoying watching hockey, even if it's uh, from uh, TV. So I was really glad that I could uh, I could step and uh, and come to to do those games and uh, be able to to play those games. Clearly, with the COVID situation, this uh, no no fans were allowed in the Wagner, which is a shame because it's such an incredible venue. Um, but what was the atmosphere like amongst the teams? I mean, were they just loving being out there playing international hockey again? Yeah, I think for the teams, it's uh, yeah, obviously it's changing because uh, during the national anthems, it's really quiet in the stadium, and uh, you can uh, you can feel the atmosphere is different. But uh, I think as soon as as soon as the game is starting, uh, the players forget about that and they just uh, start playing for the for the audience. When you enter the field, it's a little bit uh, sad and really. <laughs> No, not so much noise, but uh, that's the way it is. And uh, still, we are happy to be able to play. Uh, for the moment, I have no more games coming, but uh, yeah, it's uh, coming from, from week to week. So we'll see in the next week. 
but uh, I also have the EHL in Amsterdam uh, beginning of April. So that will be my, my next time uh, on the international field. Well, yeah, the Euro, uh, yeah, the Euro Hockey League is always a fantastic weekend. Next, we go to a, uh, a question, um, the, the listener's question. Yeah, so the question was, uh, in the last two World Cup, uh, how many goals were conceded by Tyler during those two World Cups? Uh, and that probably brings us nicely into the interview with Tyler. So the, the question there from Celine was, uh, you know, how many how many uh, goals were conceded by Tyler over the course of the two World Cups? Um, but Tyler, you'll be now throwing your your thoughts forwards um, to the um, to, to preparations for Tokyo. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what's sort of been happening over the past, say, twelve months, and and what we're looking forward to in the in, um, in the next few months from Australia in terms of preparations and also dealing with the uh, with the COVID situation. Yeah, well, if I rewind 12 months ago um, when the pandemic sort of kicked off, it was a very emotional time and a uh, very challenging for athletes. Uh, the longer the pandemic went on without the games being cancelled, it was becoming difficult for players to deal with, and then it was almost like when the games were cancelled it was sort of the only option that was really on the table and it was a bit of a relief for a lot of players um, and then we had to deal with the sort of the fact that we prepared for the last four years for the Olympics games that at that stage we weren't sure whether they were going to be cancelled completely postponed um, or what so it was um, yeah it was, a, it was a difficult time uh, we all went into lockdown in Australia I remember sitting in the um, seminar room at Perth Hockey Stadium when we got told the news from Colin Batcher, head coach, and at that stage we knew the the borders were shutting around Australia and uh, a couple of the East Coast athletes all jumped in their cars because they couldn't get any flights back to the East Coast and literally drove across the Nullarbor. And it took uh, sort of five days for them to drive back back to um, their home on the East Coast. And for people who don't know how big Australia is, it's a five-hour flight from one side to the other, so to drive it, it's sort of... 4,000 kilometres. So, yeah, we, we went into lockdown and, and the program sort of disbanded for the best part of three months, um, not knowing what was happening. And then we sort of all slowly came back to Perth. We were lucky in Australia, uh, everywhere but Victoria, managed to get some sort of a reduced hockey season out. So we, we were able to play some hockey last year, uh, albeit at, at club level. Unfortunately, Due to the size of Australia, um, the states, they all run their own borders. So when one state will have a have a couple of cases, the, the border comes up. So you can't actually travel within Australia, which which might sound bizarre, but that's uh, that's what's going on over here. And even to the today, you know, the borders from Victoria to Western Australia are still closed. People come in, have to isolate for a couple of weeks. So it's not, it was not ideal and it was challenging. So... The national championships last year were all cancelled, uh, all our underage uh, events, um, all our Masters and Open events and the Sultana Red Hockey One League, which is our premium con- competition in Australia, uh, was cancelled. So it was a different year. We, we, went, we got back training around May uh, as a group and we trained basically for the back end of the year for no real reward. As elite athletes, you, you train hard over a sort of a, six to eight to 12 week build up to be able to test yourself on the international stage and without that it was very challenging last year we had a selection camp in november which was good we sort of set our sights on that towards the back end of the year 
so gave us something to work for where we had um, the best 40 hockey players in Australia, both men and women, came to Perth and we, we had a training camp. Um, and those athletes that came over actually came over about six weeks before the training camp because they had two weeks of isolation. Um, some athletes coming from Victoria were complete hotel isolation. So then they had to get a full sort of four-week prep leading into the camp to give them the best opportunity to be selected for the 2021, Olymp- 2021 Olympics squad. Just to interrupt you there, just, just to pick up on a couple of points from early on. When all of this first kicked off and it was clear how difficult things were going to be, were there some players um, who, who perhaps really had to search deep as to whether they wanted to carry on? 2020 was the target and then they could look forward to retirement. Were, were, did, did you get the sense that there were, there were players who were really wrestling with that emotion? Well, absolutely. I think not only were players wrestling with the potential of retirement after Tokyo, but a lot of players had contracts to go and play in Europe, which they weren't able to do that anymore. So there was a lot of emotion, a lot of frustration um, around that particularly. Jodie Kenny from the Hockey Roos, um, she's a mother. Uh, Unfortunately, she couldn't continue. Uh, Her her life catches up with you as as it has with Jodie and she she had to move on. She made that decision. Um, so, yeah, certainly um, a lot of the players and I know a few of the us older kookaburras are toying with that back then. Um, and, you know, at that stage we weren't sure whether the Olympics were going to go ahead. Personally, I still wasn't sure whether the Olympics were going to go to go ahead up until about eight weeks ago. Mm. I was still questioning it. Now I'm very confident that they are going to go ahead. Um, so, yeah, we were, a lot of athletes were still wrestling with that even up until start of this year the big challenge for this year leading into tokyo is is how do we stay fresh as a group Um, how do we continue to drive each other to be better without being going going flat you know because we don't have the international games currently the only games that we're playing are interest squad games and you know when you play the same guys for six months it's kind of a bit boring um and you know what each other do so, yeah, they're all challenges which we have to deal with over the next six months or four months. Yeah. Yes, so we're uh, everyone's back in Perth now. Uh, everyone got back towards the end of January. Um, so we're building up at the moment. We're, we're, we're learning new structures, new new ways of plays. We're, we're toying with what our best tactics are, and it's it's, it's challenging because it's new to us. Some of us we've known for a long time. Um, so, yeah, we, we've got a couple of intra-squad games booked in for next week, uh, which we're trying to make a bit, um, put a bit more razz around them and get some crowds down to play in front That's of, um, although there's not, not much point of that now uh, heading into Tokyo with no crowds, <laughs> but it'd still be nice to play in front of uh, our fans. Yeah, sure. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, in, in terms of actually getting some international experience under under your belt. I'm not sure, to be honest. Uh, it's a real possibility that our first international game in 15 months will be against Japan in the opening game in Tokyo. Yeah. The Australian borders are pretty strict. And if you come into Australia, you've got a hotel quarantine for two weeks. And I think for any uh, national team preparing for Tokyo to have so to be so close to Tokyo now, to not be able to train for two weeks and be cooped up in a hotel is probably not ideal. So we're going to look to potentially go around Australia to play some some games against each other. Mm. Um, but we, it's a, certainly it's a risk risk for us because if COVID, a uh, couple of COVID uh, cases has an outbreak, if we go to northern Queensland where the 
temperature it would be ideal for preparation for Tokyo. If, if Queensland has a couple of cases, the WA, board, the WA government shuts the border instantly. Yeah. So uh, we run the risk of having to isolate, which is um, very risky. Yeah, sure. Um, a lot of teams have spoken about the fact that um, because they haven't been able to do their usual on-pitch training, um, you know, there's been an awful lot of people training at home. We've seen all sorts of videos of that. But another byproduct of that has been um, almost a, a different take on the culture within the team. Is that something that's happened within the Australian team or, or, or not so much? No, not so much. I think uh, we were very lucky. We worked very hard um, back actually when I first got in the squad and sort of after the London Olympics on the coronavirus culture. Um, and the Kukurara has a very uh, honest, open culture, a very challenging culture. And uh, we, we we're lucky in that the, the work's been done in that space. So we use it to sort of, we definitely stay connected through Zoom um, meetings and we, we get on and catch up once a week uh, during COVID, whether it was to tell each other what we've been doing whether it was to do a gym sort of session together at, at home. So, yeah, we use it in different ways um, yeah. to, to stay connected. Um, and Siegfried, how, how do you feel hearing Tyler say that, uh, you know, the Australian teams, their first international match could well be against you guys in, in Japan? Uh, nothing new. We have the same problem. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we plan a lot. And we are making new plans again, and we are busy planning for to visit Malaysia next month. But we don't know if we will be will be allowed to. And until now, every everything we planned cancelled. So we played our last match in 2018, 19. Oof. Sorry, 2019, our last international match, and that was against New Zealand in October. October so we could see we could see two very very fresh squads going head to head in uh, in Tokyo. Then uh, okay, coming coming back to you now now Tyler. Um, I, I, you know, across the world there are different systems for developing developing players. I just wondered if you could give us a little bit of a flavour of what of what it's like to be a, a aspiring junior hockey player in Australia. What what are the sort of the development pathways and the and the catering for for young talent within the country? Yeah, so our, our grassroots program starts at. I believe it's about five years old, our Hook into Hockey program. And it's, it's a really good club-based uh, program. And then, and then you progress through there up into uh, the national championships, which start at sort of under, uh, you're about 11 years old in the under-13 competition. And that's where you sort of start to be identified through the national programs. Um, and then when you sort of hit the age of about 15, 16, you then go into sort of the junior pathway programs which Mark Knowles has just been appointed as the national tactical lead here in Australia for the junior pathway program so a pretty big coup uh, for the sport here so yeah that's that's where you start to get identified and you get opportunities at underage events um, to be noticed you you get invited to national camps um, along the way and then 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 you sort of you get to your under under 21 which is the uh, last uh, underage competition here in Australia yeah. um, and then from that that's where sort of the the players will get noticed will get put into the national training centers which is the West Australian Institute of Sport where I was was put into um, and then that, that's where you you can either take the next step to the national program and you might get put into a development squad where once again you'll you get invited to various camps around Australia 
Um, you've obviously got the junior World Cups yep. and junior various junior programs, which you get opportunities to play in. And then, then from there, you, you make the national national squad. And it's very, very difficult um, to, to make the national squad as it could be. And for us here in Australia, we're sort of unique. We've got a uh, centralised uh, program here in Perth. So athletes, once you are selected into the national squad, you relocate to Perth. So we've got 27 of the hockey roos and 27 of the kookaburras all based in Perth, where, where we train six, seven days a week here at, at Perth, where where it be on-field session or gym sessions. So there is a, um, a very well-stepped-out progress and there's definitely a more mindfulness on the moment to get those tactical coaches like Mark Knowles uh, on board. And uh, there's, uh, there's actually another tactical coach, which I believe is going to start next year in the program. So, yeah, they're, they're investing heavily in the future. Uh, I think it's been identified that, you know, we need to start focusing on two Olympic cycles rather than one Olympic cycle down the track. So, Yeah. And, and you've also got, I, I guess, by bringing someone like Mark Knowles in, you've also, we were talking about the culture earlier, you're actually spreading that lower down the ranks, aren't you? Because he'll be he'll be taking that into that that setup with him. So right from the start, people are buying into the the, the Kookaburra's way of doing things, which is uh, which is great for consistency in the squad. And Yeah, correct. And, and I think the best thing about Mark's role is he's not just a junior coach, he's going to be actively involved with the national national team. So he's, he's seeing what the national teams are doing. And he's conveying that message down the ranks through the junior program. So we're going to have that consistency when a junior athlete comes into the senior program, they're already aware of what we're doing and, and they'll be able to hopefully slide into the system a lot, lot quicker. Yeah. That's brilliant. Um, obviously, I mean, you, you, you were talking about um, the fact that uh, it gets a little bit samey when you're playing the same people uh, week in, week out because of the COVID situation. But in the past, um, you, you've managed to uh, play your domestic hockey elsewhere and notably in the Hockey India League. Um, and I just wondered for all the people out there who wonder what it's like to play in a franchised uh, tournament such as that. What, what is it like to play in, in something like the Hockey India League? Amazing. Absolutely love my time in you know, in India playing hockey in the league. Um, I played for Ranchi, which was uh, uh, the, the fans of Fanatics. They packed the stadium. I swear they were going to fall on the ground. They just screamed. They cheered. They, they supported us. They loved us. Um, it was just an amazing experience. And the three years I was there at Ranchi, we were lucky enough to win the first year and compete pretty well throughout the other, the other games. And the franchise, they do things different in India um, and it takes, you know, Salim was talking about culture on the hockey field. Certainly for us internationals playing in the hockey India League, it took a little bit to get used to it. Mm. But by the end of it, I uh, loved it. I embraced the Indian culture. I loved going to India. Uh, it was fantastic. And if, if you look what's happened with the Indian team and Indian hockey over the last sort of five years, they have really benefited from the Hockey India League and having the international players around teaching them um, they're now an absolute serious threat for an olympic medal in, in tokyo where when i started back in 2013 uh, we we would beat them quite comprehensively now it's it's a very good game when we play and yes so yeah india are seeing the benefits now from that and i hope that it comes back and gives other other athletes the opportunity when, when you were talking about some of the things to get used to what, what 
uh, I mean, one of the things that I can't quite get my head around is is the fact that um, you're auctioned, aren't you? You know, you're auctioned as players. What does that feel like? You know, <laughs> do, do, is it something you're proud of? Is it something you're a bit worried about? Oh, a bit of both. A bit of uh, a bit of pride, hoping that you get picked up. Yeah, no. Look, it was it was different. It was you're sitting there on the screen. They they live streamed it and. Yeah, the other goalkeepers are getting pulled out ahead of you, and you, you're kind of hoping, oh, I hope they don't get picked up because you know I want to get picked up. And um, and then when you come around and that little paddle goes up and you're away, it's a it's yeah, it's a nice nice feeling um, <laughs> to be picked up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my final question for you before we we head on back to uh, to Celine and and Rich is uh, uh, goalkeepers. Um, I sometimes think that you have to be slightly a, a breed apart to be a goalkeeper because you know you're, you're you're part of the team and yet you're different to the team. You're wearing all that kit. You've got to have a slight, dare I say, psycho mentality to be a goalkeeper. Well, I actually think we're the smartest on the field. Have you seen how much those field players run? Like, <laughs> I can't imagine doing that. Um, no, yeah. Look, I think you've got to be. Uh, you definitely have to be different. Um, you've certainly got to be brave to stand there and. Have someone hit the ball at you at 160 kilometres an hour. I must admit, every now and then I do uh, do think, why do I do this? Um, I had one, caught one in the shoulder this morning from uh, Trent Minton who hit one from pretty close range and went, oh, that hurt. <laughs> um, but look, look, I love it. I think you, you've got to definitely love it. And it's a difficult position. Um, you can make one mistake and cost the team the game where a striker can misstrap 10 balls and no one really notices. So, yeah, you have to be very thick-skinned um, to, to play in the position and um, yeah, a little bit crazy. Yeah, and, and have very, very high levels of self-confidence, I'd have thought, as well. Because, like you say, if the ball has gone past the 10 outfield players and then it gets past you into the goal, you are the one the camera pans up on you know, on as, as the player who's, you know, the last person to see that ball. So, I guess self-confidence is quite an important thing as well for you, yeah? Yeah, I've got I've gotten used to the uh, steel blue look after a goal's gone in. Just uh, <laughs> give nothing away. So yeah, you, you absolutely have to have confidence because um, yeah, I think um, for the mistake most young goalkeepers make is they they let a goal in. And I got told this as a young young goalkeeper: the goal you let in then might not cost the team, but if you're worrying about that goal and you let an even worse goal in, uh, and that costs you the team. So I think the faster goalkeepers can sort of shelve. Uh, the goal that's gone in, deal with it later, um, the better the better you can be for you and for the team. Brilliant. There's some words of advice for aspiring young goalkeepers out there. Okay, thanks. thank you very much for that, Tyler. Um, we'll be coming back to you in a little while, but we're heading over now to uh, Rich and Celine. Hi, everybody again. Um, yeah, so Monday the 8th of March was the International Women's Day, um, and in, a, in the week leading up to that, the FIH ran uh, stories from five continents, featuring five strong and inspirational women. There were some wonderful, uh, quite emotional stories, actually, from the likes of uh, former England and Great Britain captain and proud mum, proud new mum, Alex Danson-Bennett, Australia's Caitlin Nobbs, um, Jacqueline Wangi of Kenya, India's uh, Neha Goyal, uh, and Celine's fellow international umpire, Ayana McLean of Trinidad and Tobago. Um, I just wondered if you'd been picked up on those stories, Celine, and uh, had you had a chance to read any of them? Uh, I've seen them pass, but uh, I had a really busy day at work, so I wasn't able to watch all of them. But uh, it's uh, really nice stories and really inspiring when you you listen to them. How important is uh, is something like uh, International Women's Day for you? I mean, clearly it's not just about one day; it's about the whole year. But I mean, is it important? It's important for you um, to mark an occasion like that. 
Uh, yes and no for me, because like you say, it's uh, every day of the year that uh, uh, must be important for everybody, like uh, uh, men and women are equal. So for me, it was uh, like another day, but uh, I know it's really important to remind people that uh, uh, there is still difference uh, around the world and uh, we want to, to show that to the world that uh, it must be equal. So I think it's important, but it shouldn't be. I don't know how to explain that in another way. Uh, it is nice to show that to, to the world, but uh, it shouldn't be that important because it should be every other day like that. And uh, speaking of which, we this, this goes to our next point, which goes to actually goes back to Sarah. You've, you've recently hosted a, a gender equality um, webinar, which you want to tell us about, don't you? Yeah, so um, I think in the in the last podcast, I spoke about an introductory webinar that had taken place where the idea of uh, investigating equality issues within each continental federation uh, was, was, was spoken about. And I think at, at that webinar, it was agreed that each continental federation and indeed each national association within a continent would have different um, issues around, around gender equality. The Continental federations were then tasked with going away um, and coming up with a with a strategy for moving some ideas forwards. And the very the very first continental federation to sort of stick its head above the parapet, if you like, uh, was the Pan American Hockey Federation. Um, and uh, I, I had the pleasure and privilege of, of hosting a webinar that involved um, an, uh, 25 national associations from the Pan-American region. And I mean, we're talking hugely diverse nations there from, from the giants of the game, Argentina, uh, the USA and, and Canada, uh, through to teams like Chile, Uruguay, Bolivia, um, or, you know, the, the whole gamut, really. Um, we were also joined by um, associations from across the across the globe. I think Wales, Wales tuned in and uh, there were some people from Australia tuning in. Um, and basically, we had four four um, prominent hockey uh, community members, Anthony Marcono from Trinidad and Tobago, Camilla Caram from Chile, um, Laura DeCole from Argentina and Craig Parnham from the USA. And we, we basically chewed the fat about gender, um, gender equality in, in coaching. Uh, for a couple of hours with with all of these delegates uh, listening in and, and chipping with comments as well. And it was great because what will now happen is I think we had four or five action points that were raised as a result of the seminar um, and the national associations will dip into that and, uh, and and build their own strategies for increasing the number of females who are working in coaching at all levels of the game, but particularly focusing on the elite level because with the notable exception of the USA, uh, there are very few women at the uh, coaching at the top of the game um, and yet there are so many talented female coaches out there who just need the uh, almost the, the encouragement, the wherewithal, the role models, the inspiration, all of those sorts of things. So it was a great it was a really really good um experience listening to another continent talking about their their issues and uh, and and trying to find a way forwards with it so uh, yeah um i think we'll go to the uh, interview with uh, siegfried now if uh, if, if siegfried's happy to talk always <laughs> <laughs> um siegfried obviously you've, you've had a a, a long uh, a long career as a coach you know working with some of the biggest teams in the netherlands and, and obviously you've had this uh, you've had two spells in japan with 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 the team over there um are you um What's it like to be the coach of the Japanese men leading into a home Olympic? That's a very good question. I thought about this and uh, it's difficult to express because it's fantastic to play a home Olympics or to play, uh, this will be my first Olympics. So it's amazing. It's fantastic to be there. It's also the first Olympics for the Japanese men from for about 
I think Mexico was the last time they went to the Olympics. So that's quite a long time. Uh, but on the other hand, I would have, I expected a lot of support in Japan and that's not the case because hockey is a very minor sport in Japan. Of course, the association does everything to make it more popular, but we have our issues because uh, it, as a minor sport, we have little funds, so we cannot do what we would like to do. We don't have access to the Olympic pitch. We, if we want to go there, we have to pay a fortune. And so that's a, that's a bit difficult. On the other hand, I'm a foreigner in Japan and uh, many people, I read many uh, things about that the people don't want the Olympics to be held and they want it to be canceled, etc. But everyone I meet, they are very proud of the Olympics and they all ask me to perform well at the Olympics. And they really want us to be there and to perform. So it's double. It inspires a lot. Our players are very inspired by the Olympics and to do so. But uh, the Japanese people individually, they are very proud of the Olympics and they really want it to go on. So they support it with everything they have. But on the other hand, they are scared for COVID-19, which is imaginable. That's what I read. So what I read in the papers is different than what I experience daily. It sounds like it, yes. I mean, um, you, you talk about uh, wanting to achieve uh, big things or people around you that are talking to you saying that you want, want the Japanese team to do well. I mean, you guys won the Asian Games a few years ago, so... You will be very, very competitive, clearly, in in, in uh, Tokyo. So, I mean, what were you expecting your team to achieve or what do you think that you guys can achieve in, in Tokyo? I have only one goal, and that's gold. I cannot be more clear because I don't believe in playing for only for playing. If I'm in a competition, I want to win. Everything, everything we do is based on winning, and that's what we need to do. We know that we are the lowest ranked team. We know that it's a challenge, but we don't walk away for it. We want to do our best and we hope that we can flip the script, but uh, it will not be easy. But as you said, many people didn't believe that we could win the Asian Games, but the only thing we wanted there was to win the Games because we wanted to qualify on our own merits. And to do that, we had to win the Games because it was our only chance to qualify for the Olympics, because we were already qualified as the home country. But uh, if we would be qualified only because we were the home country, then we believe that we would not be taken seriously and hockey would not be taken seriously as well. So if you want to promote the sport, you have to perform. That's the only way sport grows. And that's what we want to do. So at the Olympics, we want to do our best and we will do everything we can to win. Um, we might not win, but that's sports. But our goal, if you ask our goal, we are convinced that we can win. And that gives uh, our practices a different uh, level. We practice differently. Our focus is different. Our commitment is different. By the way, when it was cancelled, we had a major setback because 
my senior players were about to have another future from 2020. And uh, it was by then also not sure if it would be on. And so our players had a slight motivational problem. And it took us uh, quite a lot of work to get them on track again. But at this moment, we are full on track. We will see. But we, we our aim is to win the Olympics. That's fantastic. Um, and that's uh, that Asian That's game. why we want to beat Australia, by the way. Any comeback on that, Tyler? No, no problems at all. I, um, I certainly agree with um, what you say. Japan is uh, will be taken seriously by all nations. And if they, they aren't taken seriously in, in Tokyo, I would imagine that uh, Japan will, will probably beat a few teams. So, yeah, it's good to hear that you are, you're preparing because the Olympics are difficult um, and you need to be your best to win it. Yes, we will. We will do everything. But it's very difficult, as you said, for us also to assess ourselves. We practice, we work very hard, we do in the gym, we do, we practice, we try, we play with the same people, the people know everything we want to do. So it makes it hard to compete. And uh, when you have international matches, you can really assess your progress. And that's what's lacking now. And that's very hard. So I'm begging for international matches. And I'm envy the teams who can play pro league because they at least have practice matches and they can assess themselves. Like India went there, they beat Germany. Germany learned from it. They beat Holland. So I was not surprised that they beat Holland because Holland didn't play practical matches. They couldn't prepare. So in practice and without uh, practice matches, without an assessment, makes it hard. So by the time that they were, they had learned, it was over. So maybe the next matches will be better but you need those moments to learn to see and to get to that international level again so that's what we are lacking but as by saying that it's for most of the teams but not for the European teams because they can play each other and uh, so New Zealand Australia they have strict rules then we have Canada Japan and uh, South Africa, who cannot practice as they have no pro league, and the other teams can play. So that might be, might have an influence, might influence the games. But on the other hand, Olympic Games are the Olympic Games. It's quite different. And it's always, who thought that in Rio, Argentina would win the gold? I think nobody, if I'm honest. But they did. And that's the Olympics too. As a as a coach, obviously the the, the Asian Games success would, would be pretty high up there in terms of your your achievements. Would you would you say it was the best, or or is, is the best still to come? The best is always still to come, because what we did in two thousand eighteen is history, but the future is calling, eh? and uh, we have to be ready for the future. So we cannot stay and celebrate 2018 because that was its past and now we have to adjust. I strongly believe that to this Olympics will be a quite interesting one because of COVID, all teams developed new strategies, new ideas, coaches studied a lot uh, and what's more important, players are terribly fit and very eager to play because 
if it would be held last year, many teams would be exhausted because of busy pro league schedules, domestic leagues, everything. But now everyone is arrested and everybody is fired to play hockey. So I think that strategies will be different. The game will uh, evaluate to another level and uh, players will be fit enough to perform. And that's something which rarely happens at an Olympics, actually. Sorry, I've just got one final question, and it's um, it's to do with the the, the legacy uh, of of, um, of the games in in Japan and 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 how that can help the sport. Um, I mean, there's going to be a, a fantastic new facility there going forward. How how do you think that uh, that the games can help hockey grow within Japan? Uh, I think it will be it will help a lot, and. Uh, why I base this on the Rugby World Cup. We had the Rugby World Cup last year or just before the pandemic. And it was amazing what how rugby won the heart of the Japanese people. And I think that we can do the same with hockey. And I strongly believe that if we do things with passion and you do it passionate, you give everything you have, you will commit the people, the home people. And that's what we want. We want to sell our product. And that means that we are the ambassadors, we are the role models, and we have to deliver. And that delivery means that you do, that people can see that you do everything. And if so, they will commit. And that's what we need to have. Thank you so much for your time today, Siegfried. And uh, back to Sarah. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. Um, we've now just coming to back to Celine for a minute. Um, we've had a lot of talk about the Olympics, and uh, I, I know we've chatted ahead of this uh, this podcast just to check that this is a question you're okay with. But you're obviously not going to Tokyo, um, and I just wondered if um, you could talk a little bit about how there's inevitable disappointment about that, but how that has actually refocused your mind on achieving perhaps your next target, but be it a World Cup or be it Paris in 2024. You know, what 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 has actually not making a, a, an Olympics been, how, how has that been a positive for you? To be honest, at the beginning it was really hard because you are in the in the short list and you really want to go, even if you know it's going to be really difficult because the competition is really hard. And uh, like you say, I'm from a country where um, uh, women umpires are really good, especially uh, <laughs> Lorraine. So yeah, that's, that's the way it is, but she's uh, really uh, uh, helping, helping me sorry, to get... Uh, to get through this by the way she's acting, like watching her empowering, it's really inspiring. So uh, I think I, I really have uh, more steps to do to, to go to that level. And uh, that's what I'm taking from, from this. So it was a big disappointment, but at the same time, I was like, I really need to uh, grow more to be able to do that in the best way. So uh, like you said, next, I will take step by step next tournament. So I have the, uh, European Championship coming in, uh, in June and then every every game is uh, is another game and every game is important so I will be uh, fully ready for for the next World Cup or Paris we'll see but no I try to focus on the next game and not on the next tournament but not to see uh, more far away otherwise uh, when I put pressure on me I'm not really good with that so <laughs> I'd like to <laughs> I try to uh, stay, uh, keep my feet on the earth and uh, look just the next next target, and uh, we'll see how it's going. 
Sure. I, I mean, it, we, we have a phrase, a double-edged sword. And I think in, in Belgium, that's very true because on the positive side, you have got these fantastic female umpires. But on the on the negative side, only so many people from each country can go along and, and, and be umpiring. So that's your double-edged sword there. I've always been very, very impressed with the um, the professionalism and, and particularly your you have an incredibly intensive fitness regime, don't you? So your, your fitness is obviously A-OK. What, what parts of your game do you feel that you need to improve upon at the moment? So um, I can explain why I'm doing so much training. It's just uh, so for a long time, I was a good umpire, but I was like average. And then I got the, the appointment for the Champions Trophy. It was my, my biggest appointment so far. And uh, I realized if I want to go up, I need more. So I honestly asked Lorraine, what shall I do to, because I don't want to be good anymore. I want to be better and I want to, to like, uh, we, we also as an umpire, we want to, to do the gold medal. So it's the same. You don't go just to be good. You want to be the best. And I think yeah, after Lorraine went to Rio, I realized if I want to do better, I need to, to act better. So my first uh, target was the fitness. Not that I was not fit enough, but you need to be extra fit that your body is running for you and you can put your mind under percent in the game. Uh, when I'm on the game, I want my body just to, to do what it needs to do. And I want my mind focused. So, and during the pandemic, there is not so many things you can do except going running outside. <laughs> uh, I have a, a small gym uh, in my home and I go running and I uh, have a personal trainer because during the pandemic, it's what was my way of staying uh, in the game and staying focused because you can't practice, you can't go on a pitch. So this is my, yeah, my first way of putting my mind uh, in a good position. My body language is, uh, you can see my body language when I'm too stressed. So that's my next step to be able to, uh, to perform under pressure and uh, like I'm performing in Belgium. So that's really my next goal. It's, Small points I want to achieve, but it's I think the the hardest to, to get through. We're sort of coming to the to the end of the podcast, but I've just got a really quick fire round of uh, questions that none of you have seen. I just want your your answer as quickly as you can. So we'll go to uh, Tyler first. Tyler, the favourite city you have visited through your hockey career? Uh, Amsterdam. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, Amsterdam. Amsterdam. Okay. Same question to you, Celine. Shanghai. Shanghai. And yeah. Siegfried. Ipo. Excellent. So we've got three very different cities there. Um, all of you, question, question number two. The player, and it could be male or female, you admire most from the international hockey scene. And we'll go first of all to Siegfried. Dane de Neuer. Excellent. Celine? Uh, I'm going to say Vincent Van Asch. Fantastic. Tyler? Uh, my captain, Eddie Ockenden. Okay, now you've each got a, um, a, a sort of a, a personalised uh, question now. Celine, we're going to come to you first. What's the favourite umpiring signal you can give? I think God is, the, is my best. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's the one you put the most drama into. Um, Tyler, your best goalkeeping move, you know, is it, is it rushing out? To, is it, is, well, what is it? What's your best goalkeeping move? Oh, well, geez, I don't know. I've got so many. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, look, I think um, just being able to stay still uh, and save hard shots. Fantastic. Staring the player down as you do it. That's and it. Siegfried, have you got a go-to practice um, that 
you use when you want to get the player's attention? My eyes. <laughs> I have burning eyes when I want their attention. And burning there's no eyes. one who escapes. <laughs> I love that. Okay. Thank you. Over to you, Richard. I think we've got um, the answer to the question and your wrap-up round. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, um, Celine, if you could just remind everyone what the question was. So, during the last uh, two uh, World Cup, how many goals uh, Tyler conceded during those two World Cup? And Tyler, if you could give us the answer, please. I've conceded zero goals at World Cups. So, two World Cups, zero goals conceded. Do you want to elaborate a little bit more? Oh, well, back in 2014, um, I was sort of played second goalkeeper to Andrew Charter. So I only played limited minutes at each game, sort of five to ten minutes. So, uh, yeah, didn't didn't concede any there. And then in the 2018 World Cup, Andrew and I shared uh, 50-50 of the games. And, yeah, didn't, didn't concede any goals during that World Cup. That is, uh, that is quite a record. And I know that um, Siegfried will be hoping his team can get some goals past you in that first game in Tokyo. Absolutely. Uh, well, so to wrap things up, just need to remind everyone about uh, where people can follow um, hockey. So we've got uh, the FIH website, which is FIH.ch, or the social media channels, which is uh, Facebook, FI Hockey, Instagram, FI Hockey, and Twitter, which is at FIH underscore hockey. Uh, don't forget, you can also download the FIA um, app, watch.hockey, and that's available on App Store or Google Play. Brilliant. Thanks, Rich. Well, thank you to all the guests today, to Tyler. Thank you very much. Uh, Siegfried, thank you. Uh, Celine, thank you for being a fantastic guest co-host. Um, and to Richard, as usual. Um, and I'm Sarah Juggins. And uh, as usual, we've thoroughly enjoyed chatting hockey. Do tune in next time for episode six of the Hockey Pod. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Mm-hmm.